Once again, good morning, and I get to say Happy Father's Day. And uh, we will be in the book of Acts. You can turn open your Bibles to Acts chapter 3. Uh, we're going to continue our series this summer in Acts, Jesus part 2. Um, Luke wrote the Gospel of Luke, first part of his life of Jesus, and the, the works of Jesus after his ascension. So we're going to follow up in Acts chapter 3. It's a long section this morning, Acts 3, 1 through 6, 7. Because of that, we will not read it all together. I read it myself, and it took 12 minutes, so it would have been a long time. <laughs> but we will read the sections and parts and go through. And in honor of Father's Day this morning, we'll start with an illustration about my dad. Um, my dad, Mario, he was uh, re- not too long ago retired from um, HVAC, heating, ventilation, and air conditioning contractor. I learned a lot from my dad over the many years, and I use just so many tools and things he's taught me over time. I'm always calling him on the phone to ask for, for help. In the 1990s, um, his business had... Um, was going to become an authorized dealer of train technologies. Um, I don't know if you know about train technologies, but it's spelled T-R-A-N-E, and it's a manufacturer of HVAC uh, systems. And in becoming an authorized dealer, uh, the branding of train went all over their, their business front, their work vans, business cards, and such. And I don't know, does anybody know the tagline for train? It's hard to stop a train. That's right. It's, it's, it's like a dad joke made into a tagline. It's hard to stop a locomotive. It's hard to stop a T-R-A-N-E product, all right? And what's interesting about the history of their tagline is that some of the marketing materials at one time said, nothing can stop a train. And you can imagine how people you know, made some jabs and, and pokes at that when their furnace didn't work anymore. Um, Heather, my wife... Worked at uh, Gensco and Fife for a little while, and she remembers the time where the, the invoices somehow magically changed from nothing stops a train to it's hard to stop a train. Um, we can all be sure that no matter how hard uh, we want a product to look good, if you're in the marketing department, you want your product to, to shine, um, it will stop. Everything that's man-made we know ultimately stops. Uh, this morning what we're going to see is Luke, in the book of Acts, is going to show us what is unstoppable. The author's aim is to show us that the work of Jesus is unstoppable. Uh, Last time we read of the birth of the church, and the church went from 120 um, souls to 3,000 souls were saved from sin and judgment by the wind of God's Spirit. The, The wind of God's Spirit blew upon His people, and the Spirit empowered them by the Spirit to do His work, and, and nothing can stop the wind. As Jesus declared in John 3, the wind blows where it wishes. The wind of God's Spirit does as He wants. Nothing can stop the wind of God's Spirit. And in our text we're gonna, this morning, we're going to see um, attacks against the church from without and obstructions from within. Uh, and and the, mis- the mission of this fledgling group of Jesus' followers is going to be challenged. But Luke's going to make it clear that nothing can stop the work that has begun. Nothing can stop the spread of God's Word. And so we're going to use that biblical imagery of a wind to help us visualize the impossibility of stopping God. The train can be stopped, the locomotive, but not the the wind of God's Spirit. So you'll see it up on our big screen this morning. 
uh, this is the big idea, nothing can stop the wind of God's Spirit, neither forces from without nor obstructions from within. Nothing can stop the Spirit of God from increasing the name of Jesus and multiplying the disciples of Jesus, as nothing can stop the wind, nothing can stop the Spirit of God. And as followers of Jesus Christ, we can be encouraged and we can, we, we can expect opposition and we can be encouraged both personally as a, as a church that no matter what happens, God's work will continue and it will succeed. And uh, specifically, I mean, is our culture, um, you see it in our communities and our culture and our government, becomes more and more secular. Uh, God and specifically Jesus is removed in many ways from public life. We can look to our first brothers and sisters and see that the, the similar threats that they face, and they probably even face worse threats than we do, God has never been stopped. The work of his spirit is unstoppable. So we begin with forces from out. We'll look at two parts this morning. First, forces from without, then, for, then opposition from within. So you see the church has gone from 120 members to 3,000 members. That's a 2,500% increase. The church is... Uh, still, though, very small in comparison to the population and the powers of the world around it. Uh, their mission to testify to, Jerus- to, to Jesus in Jerusalem and Judea and then Samaria and then to the uttermost parts of the world, uh, it hasn't even left Jerusalem yet. It's still in Jerusalem. So at this time, the followers of Jesus would be at the most vulnerable place for this mission to be thwarted. But thankfully, as we know, the apostles... Those who had seen Jesus' death and resurrection and ascension, they did not see from the world's perspective. They looked to Jesus and they were empowered by his spirit. They knew that nothing that came against them would prosper. Nothing would stand against them because God was working in their lives. And so as we look at Luke, or Acts chapter 3, um, in this section, I'm going to sort of summarize the story so you get an idea of what's happening. In this section, the, 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 there's challenges that come to God's people. And these challenges are going to come in three parts, in Acts 3, 4, 5, and 6. I'll break them up. First, we're going to see public ignorance. That's in chapter 3. And then we're going to see persuasive threat. And then we're going to see physical violence. So first, public ignorance, then persuasive threat, and then physical violence. And we'll see that nothing can stop the Lord. The the first force of public ignorance is in chapter 3 here. And the general population in Jerusalem was, at this time, um, ignorant of two things, of Jesus' identity and of their own responsibility for his death. So as we recap chapter 3, think about it this way. This was the first time that the apostles recorded a miracle that was done. And led by the Spirit, uh, Peter and John, they go to the temple, and they see a man who's 40 years plus years old, and he's been lame from birth, and, and, he, and he's poor, and so he's begging. And, and Peter and John go to the temple, and they meet eyes with the man, and, and they look at him, and he looks at them, and he's re- expecting to receive a gift. But surprisingly, Peter says to him, silver and gold I do not have, but in the name of Jesus Christ, rise up and walk. And, and the man, he reaches down, grabs him, he gets up on his feet, and like anybody who hadn't walked before, he walks and he leaps and he praises God. All right? We have a song in the children's ministry about that. I won't sing it for you right now. The man is excited. And unsurprisingly, the, the, people, the people that are around are astonished. And they want to know, who did this miracle? 
Who did this thing? Who are these men who work such an astonishing feat? They wanted to know these miracle workers. And in verse 12, we see that um, Peter then uses this to his opportunity to begin to pr- proclaim Jesus and expose the ignorance um, of the population. He exposes both Jesus' identity and their own responsibility for his death. And, and Peter tells them, he tells them explicitly, there is nothing special about John and I who are here before you. It is Jesus, and by his name that this man is whole. This, this, this man, Jesus, is the one that you delivered to be crucified and killed only months ago. He points it out to them. And he is the one who is the author of life, but you killed him. But God raised him from the dead. And at the same time, Peter acknowledges that, you know, though you did that, you were ignorant about these things. You were ignorant about the prophecies that foretold that there would be a, a suffering Messiah, that Jesus would suffer for the sins of his people, and that by the plan of God, he would blot out the sins of the world through the death of Jesus. You were ignorant of these things. And so as we read this history, um, it is plain that their ignorance is so great that even now they are seeking after men, Peter and John, who are just like them, and they don't really realize and they don't understand that they've killed the author of life. Uh, oftentimes, it's the common people, the population, that aren't directly enemies of God, open enemies of Jesus, but they're ignorant of who he is and their guilt in his death. How many of us were once ignorant about our sins, ignorant about Jesus and who he is? How many today, how many maybe here today, you don't know and you don't understand who Jesus is in the Bible? How many of you have desired to see a miracle or, or see a special sign, but you haven't really been pursuing the, the one who works the signs, the miracle maker, Jesus? Um, how many of us don't know that or, or, or didn't know that the, the sin that was placed upon Jesus when he was on that cross, that was our sin in particular. Our sin led to his death. How many were ignorant about that? Public ignorance is a force opposing the op, the the multiplication of the disciples of Jesus. We know, like, you know, in our own state, Washington, we see the ignorance of Jesus um, growing. It, it used to be, at least for me, when I'd talk to someone, they knew lots of things about Jesus. It's just less and less true now. They, they just don't know. There's more and more people who don't know the Bible and don't know who Jesus is. There are more and more churches today than ever, but many of the churches are, 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 are continuing to spread ignorance. These churches are preaching but they're not exposing sin as Peter does here. And, 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 and thus people, they feel no need to be saved. They feel happy about themselves. They speak the benefits of Christ, but they don't share the, the duty to repent of sin and turn to Christ and that judgment's coming. And those who attend are, are more focused on the experience than on the true Jesus. Maybe the lights or the loud, uh, fun music much like the people in Jerusalem who were just looking for the sign, but not the healer, not the healer Jesus. And as ignorance did not absolve them, the population back then in Jerusalem, it doesn't absolve us as well. Ignorance today, we're, we're guilty of our sins, no matter whether we understand that completely well. We are guilty of Jesus' death and his cause of his death. But with, even with all this ignorance... Nothing can stop the wind of God's Spirit. That's, that's the point here. God awakens these, the ignorance of people by the biblical teaching 
and preaching of Jesus. When spirit-filled followers of Jesus, who were once ignorant themselves, myself included, proclaim the death and resurrection and ascension of Jesus, and then His second coming, then the Spirit of God awakens men and women and calls them to repent of their sins. Today, if any of you are ignorant and have been ignorant of the life of Jesus, the author of life, I encourage you to repent of your sins. Here it tells us when you repent of your sins, there will be times of refreshing that will come to you from the Spirit of the Lord. It will give you new life. And your sins will be washed away and you can walk in Him and grow in Him and repent continually of what's happening in your lives. Jesus' name will be proclaimed and the church will grow. It cannot be stopped because the Spirit will do a work in people's life. Um, Here we see public ignorance. And public ignorance is a threat to the gospel. But it's not the only one. Our our second threat is persuasive. Our second opposition is persuasive threat. And you'll see this in chapter 4, verses 1 through 31. Chapter 4, verses 1 through 31. In in verse 4 of chapter 4, it tells us that uh, um, through the preaching of Peter and John, the number of male disciples now rises to 5,000. So we went from 3,000 souls now to 5,000 males. So it's probably around 10,000 men and women are part of the church now. The the Spirit is moving. Jesus' name is being proclaimed and disciples are multiplying. But when the name of Jesus is spread and disciples are made, the world, it doesn't like that. And especially those who are religious and who feel threatened by the message of Jesus. Maybe they're losing their own place. And in chapter 4, we see the Jewish um, priests and Sadducees annoyed by the progress of the church. And the Sadducees, who created a religious system, who did not believe in the resurrection... They didn't believe that people would rise from the grave. Um, this is, and then when Peter and John are preaching Jesus, who um, in him is the, comes the resurrection of the dead, it, this message directly opposed their system of theological, theological belief. So they were upset. And therefore, uh, Peter and John are arrested and questioned about in whose name they did this healing. And so here in Jerusalem... You have these very powerful men, these elite in the Jewish society, and they're threatening these men who are common laborers who came you know, from, from Galilee. They were fishermen from the outskirts of Israel. And this is like a, a David and Goliath all over again. But filled with the Spirit of God, Peter and John, they take this opportunity again to expose Jesus as the rejected Christ. And, and upon the threats that they receive, they still, they boldly proclaim Jesus of Nazareth as the Messiah, the Christ, come from God to these Jewish leaders. And, and, and the, the Jewish leaders, they say again, you killed them, but God has resurrected Jesus. It, it's marvelous to me to see how Peter and John, under these threats, it, it, it didn't stop them. It actually, it fueled them to f- further proclaim the gospel. The Spirit empowered them through these threats. There, there's a lot of talk today, I think, about re- religious liberties in the news. And there's a lot of fear among Christians um, that our religious liter- liberties are being eroded. And I, I think that's a, a, a real a concern for us. I'm, I'm in agreement religious liberties are important. Uh, every week it seems like there's a court case or something that seems to erode those things. And, and there seems to be new rights that are in conflict with Christian beliefs. But in light of that, uh, we should be encouraged by the history of Acts. We should be encouraged by it. It is often that 
through by threat when threat comes that the name of Jesus is most powerfully proclaimed. It is when forces bring opposition, when there's trouble, that the wind of God's Spirit moves. When the disciples' rights are infringed or maybe even taken away, that's when the name of Jesus is trumpeted in triumphs. We see in verse 13 here of chapter 4, in verse 13 of chapter 4 and following, we find that the Jewish leaders are now in a pickle because they cannot deny the miracle of this man that had just happened, this lame man that happened before them. And yet they despise the message of the resurrection and, and then they despise that they've been accused of killing Jesus. And so in fear of losing public opinion, public support, they, they, to these uneducated, untrained men, they directly, they, they verbally uh, threaten them to not speak in the name of Jesus ever again, and then they let them go. Look at verse 19 of chapter 4. Look at verse 19. This is what Peter and John say in response. Whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge for we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. Upon these direct threats, Peter and John, they gather with the church and they say, we must pray. So the threats that they received actually pushed them to pray and to, seek, to search the scriptures and to read, we'll see. So let me read. Look at verses 23 through 31. This will be the longest section we're going to read this morning. So pay attention there. Chapter 4, 23 through 31. When they were released, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and the elders had said to them. And when they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by his Holy Spirit. And now they, they quote Psalm 2, which Stephen read earlier. Why do the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. So back in Psalm 2, there was a prophecy that all the nations would gather against the Lord and his anointed Jesus. Verse 27, For truly in this city they were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles, these are the nations, and the peoples of Israel, verse 28, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. God was in control. And now, Lord, look upon these threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand to deal, to heal and signs and wonders and perform through the name of your holy servant Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. These threats from outside did not stop the work of God. These threats actually fueled them to pray and to seek the scriptures and look at God's word. Psalm 2, when Stephen read it, quoted by Peter here, you know, it says that the nations all rage. And then right after that, though, what actually happens in Psalm 2 is it says that God laughs from heaven. He laughs in derision because men coming against him think that they can overturn what God does. It's not possible. And that's what the apostles are reading these, these scriptures and knowing this is the truth. Nothing can stop the Lord. All is under his control. And it is the filling, the power of the Holy Spirit that emboldens the disciples of Jesus to speak the word and to face threats. We can be encouraged that whatever comes in our time, I don't know, whether it's it's government or some sort of religious threat, that nothing can stop 
the wind of God's Spirit. And it's not just the, the verbal threats we're seeing. There's a, there's a third one, and that's physical abuse of God's people. Look at chapter 5, verses 12 through 42. Chapter 5, verses 12 through 42. In verses 12 through 16, um, we, we find this sort of extraordinary miracles take place. <laughs> I think they're even odd. I don't know if you've read them before, but um, th- there's miracles take place that the, the, the Spirit is so on the move that as Peter walks along, his shadow lands on some people, and they are healed. The name of Jesus is being spread like wind upon a wildfire. You remember last summer when the wind was blowing and the wildfires just took off? Hopefully that doesn't happen this summer. That's, that's, that's the way that the Spirit is moving at this time. It's just very odd in the way it's happening. And as a result, the high priests and the Sadducees are filled with jealousy. And this time... They arrest not just Peter and John, they arrest all the apostles, and they intend to take them to trial. But in verses, um, verse 19 of chapter 5, an angel of the Lord, he comes into the prison and, and springs them from prison, and he instructs them, go into the heart of Jerusalem, to the temple, and I want you to start preaching again. And so in the morning, the, the Jewish leaders uh, want to call for the apostles to come to trial, and when they do... The, the guards are on duty, the doors are shut, but the apostles are nowhere to be found. And so by word of mouth, they hear that they happen to be, again, in the temple preaching. And they are upset. But they can't harm them because, again, they're worried about how the, the people respond. They like the preaching. And so look at chapter 5, verses 27 through 33. This is the interaction that takes place when they're reunited. And when they had brought them... They set them before the council, and the high priest questioned them, saying, We strictly charge you not to teach in this name. Yet, here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching, and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. But Peter and the apostles answered, We must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom, again, you killed by hanging on a tree. God exalted him at his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses to these things. And so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. When they heard this, how was their response? They were enraged and wanted to kill them. Uh, Peter and the apostles did not heed the threats of the leaders. They, by the Spirit, obey God rather than man. And, and they disobeyed human authority when humans' authorities forbade what Jesus commanded to spread his name. And therefore the leaders, they're angry. Actually, they're murderous. They're so angry. The, the victory of God's word going forth and disciples being multiplied is enraging them. And, and specifically, the, the religious leaders here, they're worried about their loss of power and their position. And as, as, as these leaders had killed Jesus because he was taking what they wanted, now they want to kill Jesus' messengers. But at this time, um, God had more for the apostles. Remember, he's in control. He had more for the apostles. And so in a uniquely divine way, God takes one of their most respected leaders, a man named Gamaliel, we see here, and he says that um, if these apostles are, are doing something, and if it's of God, then it's a succeed. But if it's not of God, just let them go. It'll be fine. And he gives two references, two illustrations of men in the past that the same thing happened to. He says, 
This is the way we should do it. And so look at verses 38 and 39. This is what Gamaliel says. He says, So in the present case, I tell you, keep away from these men and let them alone. For if this plan or this undertaking is of man, it will fail. But if it's of God, you will not be able to overthrow them. You might even be found opposing God. So one of their own, one of the Sanhedrin's most respected leaders. Actually, we'll learn in the future, this is the man who Paul, Saul, was raised up under, uh, this man. He says, in shortened term, I'll say, nothing can stop the wind of God's Spirit. If the church is of God, don't try and stop it. Don't try to get in the way. You're just going to get blown over. So the apostles are released, but first, I guess just out of spite, they beat them, they flog them, as Jews had been, and then it seems that you know even after Gamal is leading, Gamal is reasoning, they just seemed like they, they they needed to see a little blood. It appears like. Now the apostles' reaction to this is kind of striking. It's, it's shocking in many ways. Look at verses 41 and 42. How do they respond to this? Do they go out and um, join the military? No. Verse 41. Then they left the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that the Christ is Jesus. Notice their reaction. It wasn't a a reaction of, we're going to protect ourselves, we're going to get even, we're going to get a sword. No, they, they laid down their rights and they just took it as an honor to be like Jesus, to suffer on his behalf. These men were not deterred by these, this physical violence. They actually they endured the violence by faith. And every day they kept preaching the word of God. Jesus Christ is the Messiah. And they were emboldened. I think, um, I think many of us fear persecution, whether it's threat of actual violence or um, it's you know, just the, the, the threat of violence. And they, but the history of God's people is that when real persecution occurs, God's people multiply and the word of god is increased the the spirit gives power to endure suffering he he meets us in those difficulties if you deeply care about what god cares about and the book of acts explains what god cares about the spread of his word then this this history in acts should be encouraging to us we can be hopeful we can be at peace that our future that the future will lead to jesus being known and the disciples of Jesus multiplying. For nothing can stop the power of God's Spirit moving in our lives. As Christians, we should expect opposition. In our, in our land that's increasingly secular, um, there are real threats, maybe even, I don't know, violence in the future, but we ought not to fear because we don't know the future as well as we know that God's strength will be with us in these times, as our first brothers and sisters show. So we should seek to emulate our first brothers and sisters. We should prepare now by learning how to preach the gospel, learning about um, sin, learning about who God is, learning about um, our response to Jesus' death and resurrection and faith, and learn how to proclaim the gospel. And purpose now for when threats do come, how are we going to respond? This are, these are the threats from without. But now let's second, the second half of this, let's see what the, 
the second opposition, and this is threats from within. Threats from within. And I think that more than threats from outside the church, public ignorance, threat, violence, it's actually the threats from within the church that are most damaging. I, I think that most often, oftentimes we're, we are culturally looking at what the battles outside of the church are taking place, maybe in government, maybe in um, just um, different groups that are pushing their agendas. But then we miss the battles that are actually taking place within the church that are actually more harmful. So Luke now records two obstructions within the church that endanger the work of God. And the first one is personal sin, and the second one is church disunity. First personal sin, then church disunity. As you can imagine, the early church was not wealthy. Uh, Many in the church were quite poor. You know, Jesus told um, his disciples to go out to the least, and generally the least don't have a whole lot of money. (laughs) But by the provision of God, the disciples of Jesus were knit together in their hearts and souls. They loved, they cared for one another. And those who had much gave it, and those who had lack didn't have lack because they were given to. Look at what we read in chapter 4, back to chapter 4, verses 34 and 35. Chapter 4, 34 and 35. There was not a needy person among them, for as many were owners of lands or houses sold them, and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid at the apostles' feet. And it was distributed to each as any had need. As an example of generosity, there's one man named right after this. His name is Barnabas. And his name means son of encouragement. And as an example, he gave all of his field to the apostles to help provide for the, the, the needs. And um, we, we see that in this case that even the poverty is not going to stop the work of God's Spirit. But but there's a bigger problem than poverty that's among them, and that is the problem of sin. It was the problem of greed. And so in chapter 5, verses 1 through 11, we see the history of a man and a woman named um, Ananias and Sapphira. This is a husband and a wife, a couple. And in contrast to the generosity of Barnabas, uh, these two are set in contrast. And they sell a piece of property... But they don't give all the proceeds, and even, even maybe that, not even the problem, but then they, they lie about it. And we can imagine that the, the reason they did that was, you know, they, may, they wanted to look good in their, their generosity, as well as they, they wanted to have a nest egg so in case something went wrong, they would have a little money left over. And so they lie about that. And this deceit, then we see the story turns deadly when Peter and John, or, or Peter confronts them. And through the Spirit, he realizes their deception, and he confronts them. And when he asks them, did you do this, did you lie, they stick to their story, and they say exactly what they did. And in, in, first um, Ananias, and then Sapphira, they both fall down dead. This is a weird story. As you read the, the, the book of Acts and you come to chapter 5, you're, you're excited. You know, there's persecution taking place, but... The disciples are multiplying. The church is growing. Uh, the, the people are, are joyful. They're, they're gathering in homes. And all of a sudden, suddenly there's death. It's just it's a shocking change of events. So it's important for us to ask, what happened here? What's going on? And the key to understanding these events is the result of their deaths. Look at chapter 5 and then look at verse 5 and verse 11. There's a repeat, repeated phrase that helps us understand this. Chapter 5, verse 5 and verse 11. 
When Ananias heard these words, this is verse 5, he fell down and breathed his last, and great fear came upon all who heard of it. And then verse 11, and great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard of these things. The biggest threat to the spread of the word of God through his people is their witness. If the disciples of Christ become like the world, the witness, uh, witness of the Spirit is, is cheapened. God dealt harshly with Ananias and Sapphira to ensure their purity and the, of this, uh, the purity of this fledgling church. Uh, the, this couple, the death of this couple, vividly shows and reminds us that first and foremost we must fear the Lord. Uh, they, they saw how, uh, you see how greed and lying to God, it was going to harm the mission um, and those who from the outside would look in would disregard what they were doing. We ought not to fear eternal, external threats to the church because God's there and in control, but we ought to fear God and sinning against God. Uh, nothing can stop the wind of God's Spirit. He will ensure, and he did in this section, even that our own personal sin will not stop his work, but our, our holiness and our purity matter. God's work will be accomplished. Nothing nothing will stop it. But if you want to glorify Jesus with your life, you need to care about your purity. The deaths of Ananias and Sapphira were unique in a special time in the church. It was, you know, the church was um, new and the the history of what was happening was important. But there are many, and so their deaths are unique in that way. But the the history of the church, there's been many deaths that have occurred, you know, in people's lives personally just things have died uh, think of the some of the biblical examples um cain through jealousy his brother died um achan remember he by greed he took back some gold from the israelite community and his he and his family died uh, uh, think of king david what did his lust do his his his, his son died and then i think of haman i've been reading that um, recently in my study haman through his, um, you know, he built a gallows so Mordecai would die on it through his jealousy, and he died. Our personal holiness, it does bring forth, um, if we don't consider, if we don't live for we, it, it brings forth death in our lives. Not, not physical death always. Oftentimes it's more something dies in what we're doing. Maybe a relationship in our lives. If you're a member of the chapel church here, I, I want to say to you, your personal sin, it matters. It matters not just to you, but to your family and to this, 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 um, the work here at this church. And so consider those things. And just take it as a, oh, I want to fear the Lord first so we can grow as a church and the disciples of Jesus can be multiplied. The shocking death of Ananias and Sapphira um, should help us consider and ponder these things. Always. Be encouraged that the wind of God's Spirit will not be stopped. He will accomplish His work. But consider our own sin and be wise. Fear the Lord. So, we see personal sin won't stop the work of God's Spirit. But last, we also see that church disunity will not stop the work of God's Spirit. Luke also records this. Look at chapter 6. This will be our last section, chapter 6. In chapter 6, there's another story in which the Hebrews and the Hellenists, uh, there's, a, there's a dispute between the two. 
And the problem was the Hebrew Christians were giving favoritism toward the widows, or at least they were neglecting the Hellenist widows. And they were giving the widows a distribution of food, and the Hellenist widows were either not receiving it or not receiving as much as they should have been receiving. And so to understand this problem a little bit more, we need to understand the context. In this time, the Hellenists were Greek-speaking Jews. They were Greek-speaking Jews, and there was a prejudice against them because they were considered more worldly than the Aramaic-speaking Jews, for they had taken on the language of the world, Greek. And so when it came to the care of the widows, there was either a, um, a partiality problem, like an ethnic partiality problem, or at least the perception of a partiality problem here. Because the, the vulnerable Hellenist widows were not receiving their needs, their care, their distribution of food. And so I don't, I don't think it's hard for us to today uh, picture this. We see all sorts of division in our culture And we know that the church, and specifically the American church, has been plagued with disunity along ethnic lines. There's been partiality and, or at least perceived partiality at times in the church. And and in our local church over the last year, I've been involved in conversations where there's been disagreements and divisions among members along these lines of, um, and the decisions and the, the discussions that have happened in our country over the last year. It's not hard for us to, to picture these divisions. The point here is that ethnic disunity within the church, um, because of what it does, it can cause trouble, and it's a killer of gospel witness. But we can be thankful that the Lord again cares for his church, and nothing can stop the wind of God's Spirit. Uh, by the apostles leading this uh, this small gathering, this church, this early church, they uh, come up with a plan. They, they pray and they ask for spirit-filled men to be um, help care for these Hellenist widows. And they pray, and there's a number of men raised up here. Stephen, by name, is one of them. That's probably where our pastor gets his name. Um, he is, is raised up to care for these widows. And we can tell by their names that they're Greek speakers. So they had a, a particular ability to care for these these, these ladies. And in so doing, the apostles then could focus on the word of God and prayer, and the church is cared for and united. Many believe that these, these first men here are kind of like the, the forerunners of what we have for deacons. We have deacons here in our church, and they help you know, for a particular ministry need, maybe causing disunity. They help to unite the church and to care for people, and that the, the leaders can prioritize God's word and prayer. This is the way that God works. He works practically in his people to provide for needs because nothing can stop the wind of God's spirit. Um, Disunity in the church, and specifically ethnic disunity, is a plague on the church. But God will ultimately accomplish his plans despite the problems within the church. We've seen that forces from without the church are very strong at times, but they will never succeed we see that there's dangerous obstructions within the church that maybe even further threaten the Word of God, and they will never succeed. So, in summary, if you get nothing else, this is kind of the main point this morning. Look at chapter 6, verse 7. Chapter 6, verse 7. And the Word of God continued to increase, and the number of disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. See what's happening? The word of God is increasing. 
The disciples, the disciples are multiplying. I know of only one time where the wind was stopped. Can you think of it? Jesus' disciples were in a boat, and the wind and the waves were threatening their lives. And Jesus woke up from his sleep. They awoken him. And what did he do? He stood and he spoke and he said, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased and there was calm upon the, the waters. Our point this morning is not the power of the wind. It is the power of God to spread the name of Jesus through the power of the Spirit, no matter what comes in the way. Nothing can stop this work. In this last verse uh, of our section, verse 7, we see, again, the disciples are multiplying. The church is expanding. Uh, we see this unlikely group, this small group of Christians, um, you know, um, proclaiming God's word, it going out, and in the midst of religious Judaism, in the midst of a Roman empire that's strong, they're growing and prospering under persecution. But what else do we see? Look at that last phrase there. It says, even a great number of the priests became obedient to Jesus. Uh, did you see that? Throughout the Gospels, throughout um, even what we've seen so far, the priests are the ones that have been shown to be hard-hearted, that they just could not change. They were the ones who were against you. There's only a very few. But it says even here, some of the priests became obedient to the faith. Remember, history is clear. Nothing can stop the wind of God's Spirit. As Jesus said, it blows wherever it wishes. Um, Do you feel, any of you here, that you could never um, follow Christ? Um, do you feel like maybe your sin is too much? You've done something that um, you, you, you can't measure up? It's just not true. The Spirit of God can change your life and you can follow Jesus. Um, do you have a friend you feel like is you know, just too ignorant, just, just doesn't, doesn't know and they, they will never know? God's Spirit can move their life. Pray for them that they would know Christ. How about... Is there a personal sin that you have that is just too much? You're enslaved by it and you think you're trapped forever? God's Spirit can work in your life to bring that away. Do you think that ethnic partiality will always be? There's nothing that can be done about it. It's not true. God's Spirit will move and one day every tribe and tongue and nation will be together worshiping the Lord. Be encouraged and remember, nothing can stop the wind of God's Spirit. It blew through Jerusalem, and we are proof here today that it did make it to the ends of the earth. Let me pray. Lord, thank you that there's nothing impossible for you. Lord, thank you that we don't have to fear um, those things that come against um, us personally, this church in a whole, and the church um, corporately throughout the world, that you will accomplish what you desire to do, and you will gather the people to, to be saved, that you desire to be saved and to walk with you. Lord, we pray for your protection for us within the church, or that we would first be those who look at ourselves and look at our actions and deal with the things that we need to deal with here first, and that we would... Um, trust you to help care for the disunities that are among us, the problems, and ultimately know that you will build your church and nothing will go against it.
Thank you, Lord, for your kindness. In Jesus' name, amen.